At the bottom of an obscure government webpage listing ministerial hospitality, there's a very brief entry for Saturday, the 28th of April, 2018. It records an overnight stay made by Boris Johnson, who was Foreign Secretary at the time, at Evgeny Lebedev's house. It says Boris Johnson was accompanied by a spouse, a family member or friend. And that's it. The bold entry suggests no drama, no hint of a glamorous location, and certainly no sense of intrigue. But those things were there. And more. A day earlier, on the Friday, Boris Johnson had been at a NATO foreign minister summit in Brussels. It was the first meeting of its kind since Russian agents tried murdering the dissident Sergei Skripal and his daughter Yulia with a chemical weapon in Salisbury. At the meeting, Boris Johnson urged his counterparts to do more to tackle Russia's malign influence around the world. And then he flew to Italy for a party, hosted by a former KGB agent. Not accompanied by a spouse, relative or friend, or even his close protection officers, but alone, to stay at Palazzo Terranova, not just with Evgeny, but also with Alexander Lebedev. It wasn't the first time Boris Johnson went on a spontaneous trip. One of his ministers in the Foreign Office recalls trying to find out where the Foreign Secretary was over one weekend, only to learn later that he was holidaying on Mohammed bin Salman's superyacht. But this trip to the Lebedevs in Umbria was perhaps more problematic. And it didn't go unnoticed by Britain's allies. This is very, very worrying scenario because not just a foreign minister of an allied country comes here in the house of a former KGB spy. Not just this, but the Italian intel knows this very well. It informs the Italian government. And so the Italian government is well aware of this dangerous trip of Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson's visit would end up in the British newspapers because he was spotted at Perugia Airport on the Sunday. No luggage, crumpled suit, curved walk. Everyone who saw him immediately assumed he was completely hungover. In Italian, they write party a luci rosse, red lights parties. Literally, this is written in the report. It seems to me crystal clear that a foreign minister, then prime minister, who simply has been invited in that kind of party, is a, a, a victim of a potential compromise. The fears of compromise were real, as were the risks Boris Johnson took with his personal security. But there was something else we should have been worried about. Something worse. On that overnight stay, Alexander wanted to provide a direct, unmonitored line between Britain's foreign secretary and Sergei Lavrov, Russia's foreign minister, to discuss the Skripal case. There are, of course, no formal records of this, but the account is supported by three other people connected to the Foreign Office. One says Boris Johnson's staff were dismayed 
that he was considering using Alexander as an intermediary. If it had been set up officially from London, that kind of call would have been carefully thought through and closely monitored. Now, it seems, a former KGB agent was offering to fix it up with no safeguards in place. I'm Paul Caruana Galizia, and from Tortoise, this is Londongrad. As you know by now, the Lebedev story is littered with parties. Dotted all over London, at their houses, or tucked discreetly away in the hills of Umbria. Some of them were big displays to show off their wealth and status. Some were smaller, more intimate events to make friendships. And, as I've been saying all the way through, they were parties with a purpose. The Great Bash at Altorp in 2006 told the world that the Lebedevs had arrived, and all the ones that followed made their faces famous on the social scene. But the big question behind the parties is, was there another purpose? Something calculated and political? Maybe even something that posed a security risk to the UK if its secrets were spilled? Did a former KGB officer like Alexander see a direct line to power and influence, particularly in the smaller get-togethers behind closed doors? And should his guests have been suspicious about his real agenda? Because this episode isn't so much about the Lebedevs who gave the parties. It's mostly about a guest who was happy to go to so many of them. Boris Johnson. The same Russian military intelligence unit that had tried murdering the Skripals launched cyber attacks on Britain's security services, its defence entities and Boris Johnson's foreign office. The government was under attack. Parliament's Intelligence and Security Committee began investigating. Our report covered the whole sphere of potential Russian state activity. And that included cyber, it included possible interference in elections or referendums by bots or by deliberate mm. interference. This is Dominic Grieve, a barrister and a former Conservative MP and Attorney General, who chaired the committee. The Skripal case added to his suspicions that Britain had taken its eye off the ball with Russia. We were mindful of the fact that the focus of much of the intelligence work that was being done by the United Kingdom in the 2000s was aimed at counter-terrorism. And it became obvious that Russia under President Putin was becoming a significant issue, a place which is run on essentially criminal lines with President Putin as the capo di tutti i capi, tolerating high levels of corruption uh, provided that that is done in a manner that appears to suit his own and what he would regard as Russian state interests. The committee heard evidence from the security services, defence intelligence, as well as former intelligence officials. One of them was Chris Steele, who ran the Russia desk at MI6 between 2006 and 2009. 
the resources put into intelligence work on Russia from the various agencies fell to a historic low point uh, after 2000 and was in single figures by the sort of time that people began to wake, wake up to the, the rogue nature of this regime. And just as Britain's intelligence agencies were being drained of resources, the scale of Russian money flooding into the country escalated. The oligarchs were arriving. These were people who Putin knew from his early days, who all, through Putin, had all of a sudden become extremely wealthy. On this, the committee heard evidence from Bill Browder, who was the largest foreign investor in Russia until he was expelled for campaigning against corruption there. As Bill explained, these men found it easier to open up the establishment in Britain than in Russia, where bribes run into the millions and even billions. Well, it's much cheaper here. You, it costs almost nothing. If you can find somebody who's willing to be corrupted, they, they, they cost almost nothing compared to somebody over there. You know, the, the, the price of corruption is much higher in Russia. You know, these people sell themselves cheap. For Dominic Greaves' committee, the effects on Britain were plain to see. I think it's clear from our report that it was accepted that this was a real issue. We have, over a period of 25, 30 years, allowed our country to be suffused with money from Russian expatriates, some of whom continue to have very close links with the Russian state. And the consequences it was having in London, both directly but also indirectly in terms of creating a, a, a sort of oasis of facilitators around these people, lawyers, accountants, estate agents and other professionals who were wittingly or unwittingly serving the interests of people uh, who in fact were dealing in money in large quantities in some cases which was laundered and in other cases might well have interests which were not strictly commercial. But it's not just an issue for London, or even Britain as a whole. That money, the cash that suffused the country, was bled out of ordinary Russians, stolen from their resources, public services and companies. It is ultimately theirs. My name is Maria Pevchik and I'm the Chief Investigator at the Anti-Corruption Foundation, um, the NGO um, that was established by Alexei Navalny, who's currently in prison, serving a nine and a half year sentence. Russian opposition politician Alexei Navalny survived an assassination attempt in the summer after being poisoned with the nerve agent Novichok. Maria helped Alexei Navalny reveal who was behind his poisoning with Novichok and how it was administered. Okay, then tell me what kind of clothes it was applied on. What was the main focus? What's the riskiest piece of clothing in theory? Well, underpants. Underpants. Maria, do you feel do you feel safe doing your work? Do you feel at risk? Do I feel safe? No, absolutely not. I I don't remember what safety feels like. She can't tell me where she is now, but she's still working to uncover and highlight corruption in Russia. Russian government officials actually quite genuinely think that they are underpaid and they think that they deserve more. They think that they are so, you know, like genius and big and skillful. And if they were businessmen, they would be billionaires, but they are serving Russia. And so, says Maria, 
they feel they need to be compensated for their sacrifice. Russian government officials are paid well. Like we're talking big money, like it's they are not underpaid. It's not like they are rich people anyways. Compared to, say, the average Russian income, how, how much are they paid? Mm, I'm just getting my calculator out because I've never actually looked into this. So Flavre... To answer my question, Maria gets her calculator out to compare the salary of the Russian foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, with that of an ordinary Russian. A million rubles a year, divided by 12, that's the month, divided by 75. So Lavrov is probably getting $11,000. So ministers would be getting officially as a base salary, something around 10 to $12,000 a month. Don't forget that everything for them is for free because everything is paid. The flat is paid, the car is paid, the drivers are paid for, the uh, assistants are paid for, etc. So the whole apparatus is, is kind of covering their expenses. So this is just their pocket money, essentially, $11,000. So we're talking 550 as an average salary for just a regular, just a normal median Russian person. So yeah, 550 bucks here and 11000 for Lavrov. And then Lavrov thinks that he's underpaid and he gets this, you know, additional bonus bonuses from from the oligarchs so the oligarchs are literally like their wallets yeah correct that's that's a good word to describe it and if russian officials use oligarchs as wallets to supplement their salaries it's london property that they use to hide that extra cash the problem with the uk is that it's very easy to hide your assets in london in most of the cases that we deal with, we see and we know that this person lives in London. We probably even know where, but there is no way of, of proving it because the house or land would be registered to um, an offshore company in some of the you know, exotic islands somewhere. And yeah, and then good luck, you will never know. We've known for a long time how easy it is for someone to buy property anonymously in London. And yet... Until Russian troops invaded Ukraine earlier this year, we had done nothing to tackle it. There was this little, you know, a bit of a wink-wink situation. It's just, yeah, but like, but they bring so much money to, to, to London. They bring so much cash with them that it's actually not that bad. They will never do anything awful here because when they're here, they play by the rules. Maria tells me a story to show how Britain simply hasn't been paying attention and how those in power have been willfully blind to the corrosive effect of illicit money. It's about a young Russian called Polina Kovaleva. It's a very simple story. There is this young girl. Her lifestyle is completely transparent. We know where she studied. We know what she did after uni. We know that she did a couple of internships, then travelled the world and just, you know, partied. And then she lands this flat worth £4.4 million and she pays cash for it. It's a classic example of unexplained Russian wealth in London, in the royal borough of Kensington and Chelsea, again. The flat is just off Kensington High Street. You don't need to draw complicated uh, spidergrams and, you know, all of those things to be able to explain that. There is a very young girl... She's not married. She doesn't have a rich boyfriend. Her only source of income is her parents and her stepdad is the Minister of Foreign Affairs. 
Sergei Lavrov, Russia's Minister of Foreign Affairs. A diplomat under Barack Obama once described Lavrov as offensive, cruel, unlikable, caddish, nothing redeemable. A diplomat under Obama's predecessor, George W. Bush, called him a complete asshole. But the view of Lavrov on this side of the Atlantic was slightly more forgiving. And uh, this document assesses that the Alexander Lebedev operations were not just real estate, but there were, well, both the, the Intel rights, literally, espionage operations. Jacopo Jacoboni is an investigative journalist who wrote a book about the influence of Russian oligarchs in Italy called Oligarchy, with a chapter dedicated to Alexander Lebedev. Jacopo uncovered a document prepared by Italy's external intelligence and security agency, its MI6, for the parliamentary committee that oversees the country's intelligence bodies, a committee that includes the defence minister. The document reports on Alexander's activities in Italy. Activities that include real estate transactions conducted with individuals linked to the Camorra and Indrangheta mafia clans, to strengthen Russian involvement in Italy's tourism and financial sectors, investments via Gazprom to acquire control of Italian energy infrastructure, and chairing a confidential meeting called Russia and the World in Crisis and After at Palazzo Terranova, where Russian academics discuss the country's global economic standing. One of the other important things the, the document states is that uh, Alexander Lebedev is uh, currently uh, very close to the Kremlin. Because one of the points is that uh, in the narrative of the Lebedevs, especially of uh, Alexander, is pretending to be, I, I, I don't know if to say some sort of Kremlin opponents, but in any case, figure uh, very uh, distant from from the the Putin circle. What the the report says instead is that Alexander uh, remained very close to the Kremlin. So, when Boris Johnson flies out to Umbria that weekend in April 2018, he's headed for an overnight stay with a man the Italian spies say enjoys the favour and friendship of Vladimir Putin. The Italian intelligence was well aware of the trip of Boris Johnson. So this is very, very uh, worrying scenario because not just a foreign minister of an allied country comes here in the house of uh, a former KGB spy. Not just this, but the Italian intel knows these very well, and so it informs the Italian government. And so the Italian government is well, well aware of this uh, dangerous trip of Boris Johnson. Italian agents thought the trip was dangerous because it put Johnson in a potentially compromising situation. If the source who says that Alexander set up a call between Boris Johnson and Lavrov during this visit is right, then the picture is far worse. 
a direct unmonitored line to discuss the Skripal case would have subverted Britain's own foreign policy approach. At the time, relations between Britain and Russia were at an unprecedented low point. Britain expelled Russian diplomats and spies. There were open arguments between Kremlin and Whitehall officials. The official channels of communication, a top-ranking diplomat tells me, were not very pleasant. A foreign office minister says the policy was to shun Lavrov. Boris didn't like him, but he didn't follow the rules either. The call at Palazzo Terranova, Alexander must have thought, provided a way to break through the official controls and make him seem valuable to the Kremlin. In the end, it seems it was less important to Johnson. The call never happened because, the source says, Boris Johnson overslept. The account, although difficult to verify, is supported by three other people who are connected to the foreign office. One of them says, though, that it was Johnson's staff who had warned him off using Alexander as an intermediary. Another says discussions about using Alexander in this way weren't intensive. The third says the plan fits with Johnson's generally chummy approach to foreign policy. I suspect those officials were relieved when Johnson resigned his post as foreign secretary and returned to the conservative backbenches. He said he resigned over the government's handling of Brexit. But a conservative leadership election was in the offing as Theresa May's government struggled and stumbled through backbench revolts. And if Johnson won the leadership, he'd realise his real ambition, Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. Boris Johnson had the Evening Standard support, which was strange given the newspaper's left-leaning, remain-backing London audience. It declared in an editorial, we back Boris as the PM to turn Britain around. So he stirred the pot. We're going to come out on October the 31st. And I think anybody who goes into this negotiating a negotiation proposing yet again to kick the can down the road will, I think, run the risk of forfeiting. Now's the time for us to believe in ourselves and what we can do. And that's why I am standing. And therefore, I give notice that Boris Johnson is elected as the leader of the Conservative and Unionist Party. He campaigned and he won. Well, there you have Jeremy Hunt cheering the new leader of the Conservative Party. A very good moment in the sense that there was some degree of union in that moment. Here is Boris Johnson. Very good. Good morning, everybody. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. We're really pleased that we're able to be able to support Alexander on this. Modestly, I think Alexander wanted it privately published, but we thought that it was so stimulating that uh, it would make a much better... September 2019, and Alexander Lebedev was in London to launch his book, Hunt the Banker. The book is turgid. It's also strange. Alexander sometimes refers to himself in the first and sometimes in the third person. It is fantastically vain. It contains photocopies of character references supplied by Elton John, Ian McKellen, 
and John Malkovich, supplied for his battery trial in Moscow. Above all, the book is slippery. It gives explanations for his departure from the FSB and the closure of his tabloid that do not match what we've heard while working on this podcast. As one of his long-term associates told me, Alexander's number one characteristic is duplicity. His book describes a number of corruption cases in Russia, but is extremely careful not to criticize Putin, the man right at the top of the mafia state. In fact, over the book's 500 pages, he says nothing about Putin. He says nothing about Putin, even though the book's cover has a photo of them together set against the Kremlin. Perhaps unsurprisingly, at least one Kremlin official attended the Moscow book launch. Sergei Lavrov's hardline spokesperson, Maria Zakharova, best known for spreading cruel disinformation about Britain's response to the Skripal case. The London launch was at Northcliffe House, home to the Lebedev's newspapers. There were journalists, publishers and Evgeny. There was also billionaire Mikhail Friedman, a Putin-friendly oligarch. Noticeably absent was Boris Johnson. Britain's new Prime Minister had other things on. A few days before Alexander's book launch, Boris Johnson indicated that he'd call a general election to strengthen his mandate. And just as Mr Johnson was plotting his campaign, Dominic Grieve's Russia report landed on his desk at Downing Street. The report was, from our point of view, ready for publication by September of 2019. Now, the final stage with any of these inquiry reports is they get submitted to the Prime Minister, and the Prime Minister has an opportunity of looking at the report, because you have to understand that by the time it goes to the Prime Minister, every intelligence agency has cleared it, so they have no anxieties about it. The Cabinet Office Central Secretariat has cleared it. So the idea that it might have national security implications anymore have been or should have been entirely removed. And if the Prime Minister had some overarching concern, then I, as chair of the Intelligence and Security Committee, would have expected the Prime Minister to ask to see me privately to explain what that concern might be. Boris Johnson never got back to the committee. Now, what actually happened is that this report went in and the usual turnaround time is about three weeks. Uh, When at the end of three weeks and we were in the middle of October, I started to become slightly anxious about the fact that we hadn't heard back because it was becoming fairly clear that there was a strong likelihood there was going to be a general election. And the difficulty is that when a general election is called and Parliament is dissolved, the committee ceases to exist. And while the committee does not exist, it is not possible for a committee report to be published. So in mid-October, we started to make inquiries about what on earth was going on. And we encountered initially something of a wall of silence. And then eventually, when it was becoming clear that we were within potentially days of Parliament being dissolved and the general election occurring, 
Uh, we were told that uh, the report could not be published before Parliament was dissolved. The Cabinet Office kept giving Dominic Grieve the runaround, raising questions about redactions that had already been settled by September until Parliament was finally dissolved in November. Voting was held on the 12th of December. Our exit poll is suggesting that there will be a Conservative majority when all the votes are counted after this election of December 2019. And the results became apparent quite quickly. It is six minutes past five in the morning and uh, we are now in a position to say that this election of 2019 formally has been won by the Conservatives. They're now on 327 seats. A landslide for the Conservatives. Boris Johnson controlled a majority of 80 seats. He had a lot to celebrate. The following day, he went to the Lebedev's rented house overlooking Regent's Park for their annual vodka and caviar Christmas party. It was also to celebrate Alexander's 60th birthday. I find it fascinating that Boris Johnson went to the party at all. Fresh off the back of the election, with a big mandate and a programme of government to put together. He still hadn't appointed a cabinet. The Prime Minister's entry must have been a mile high. There was real excitement about what he was planning to do. And what did he do one night after his election victory with a mountain of work in front of him? He went to a lavish vodka and caviar party. And he stayed. For a long time. Inside the stuccoed mansion, Politicians mixed with film stars and millionaires. A Jeremy Corbyn lookalike wandered around. <laughs> and then there was Matthew Norman, the independent columnist. He still had those magnificent pockets of, of unlikely little groups, like, like Nigel Farage with Joan Collins and Grayson Perry. It's like a some parlour game, you know, when you just put the most unlikely people together. So you wouldn't see that everywhere. But he was in no mood to party. I think most of us have been up all night and some of us were fairly traumatised by the results and horrified. So Boris's sister Rachel turned up and then he turned up. And then I think, I thought, well... I don't have many standards left, but I, I've got to slightly watch the company I keep, so I excuse myself. Boris Johnson stayed late, and he was still sitting on the Russia report. One does scratch one's head a little bit and say, what is it in this report, or about the report, that made the government unwilling to see it published in the last days of the 2019 parliament before its dissolution? I'm not at all clear why. Obviously, there may have been material in this report which the government found, to an extent, mildly embarrassing. Dominic Grieve thought of a couple of explanations. The issues around uh, Russian expatriate money in this country was the funding of political parties. That's one explanation. Uh, the other explanation might be that we highlighted the failure to investigate uh, whether, in fact, there had been attempts at Russian interference in the EU referendum. But the final thing is simply that by then, 
because of my own personal stance on Brexit. It may simply be that the Prime Minister or the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff, Mr Cummings, simply didn't want to see this published because they didn't want something published with my name on the front as the chair of the Intelligence and Security Committee. But, looking back, there was something else in the report that must have been playing on Boris Johnson's mind. A short section on the House of Lords. Boris Johnson may have honoured Alexander with his presence that evening at Regent's Park, but it would be nothing on what he was planning for Evgeny. That's all in episode 6 of Londongrad. Thank you for listening to Londongrad. This series is reported by me, Paul Caruana Galizia. The producer is Katie Gunning. The sound designers are Carla Patella and Tom Kinsella. The editor is Kerry Thomas. I hope you are enjoying the series. I have been reporting on the corrosive effects of illicit money coming into Europe since I joined Tortoise four years ago now. If you're not already a Tortoise member... I'd love to invite you to join to get early access to my investigations, to all our slow and considered journalism, as well as invites to exclusive newsroom events. To join Tortoise as a member, use my code PAUL50 for half-price membership for £50 per year. Visit tortoisemedia.com slash Londongrad.